would you say the most famous Bible verse in the world is? John 3.16. Who's voting John 3.16? Good work. Well done. It should be. But Don Carson, the American Bible scholar, who's got two books out here for the love of God, which are devotional readers. It'll help you get through the whole Bible in a year. Um, Four readings a day with a, a devotional comment. In one of his comments about Matthew 7, which is the passage we're going to read in a moment, he says he thinks that where John 3.16 used to be the most famous verse in the world, he wonders if Matthew 7 verse 1 has overtaken it. So let's read Matthew 7, and we're going to read verses 1 to 12, and then we're going to be thinking about this. So what we're doing over this month of January, the summer, we're looking at verses that are sometimes or very often misunderstood, and this is one of them. And yet it's so important that Christians get their head around what Jesus means here. So Matthew 7, uh, verses 1 to 12. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother... Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. So may God help us understand his holy word. So the most famous Bible verse, yes, Don Carson says it used to be John 3.16. It's been overtaken, he wonders, uh, by Matthew 7 verse 1. And he says of Matthew 7 verse 1, it's frequently quoted almost as a defiant gesture by some people who do not know their Bible very well but who think it authorises their biases. In our time of moral relativity, these nine words might almost be taken as the public confession. Now, have you ever spoken to someone and they've said, judge not lest you be judged or words to that, don't you, who do you think you are to judge me? Have you ever had that kind of a conversation? Believe me, I have, right? Um, Does that mean we're not allowed to have an opinion? Does that mean that we should never, ever disagree with anyone? Because if you follow that idea through to its logical conclusion, we've just got to do our best to agree with everybody about everything. Now, the quickest way to work out what's going on in the world is to Google it. So I Googled non-judgmentalism and I came up with a few different examples. 
So I discovered a woman in America who was new to a town and she put on one of those local chat groups that, to help you find out what's going on in town. She said, I've got very bad decay and I need a non-judgmental dentist. Can you imagine going to a non-judgmental dentist? He looks down your mouth, he sees a mouth full of decay and says, no problem. <laughs> Is that what we're after? That's a non- I haven't got an opinion, sorry. There's a, a website that answers your questions. So if you want to know what non-judgmentalism, then you type it in and this website's about third down and it'll tell you. So this is what it is. It's refraining from forming opinions or making evaluations, accepting and respecting others without imposing beliefs or standards. Non-judgmental people tend to be more curious, open-minded, progressive, tolerant, inquisitive, fair, receptive and unbiased towards others as opposed to judgmental people who are usually highly critical, narrow-minded, intolerant and reactionary. So non-judgmental good, judgmental bad. But isn't that a judgment? To say that a judgmental person is usually highly critical, narrow-minded, intolerant and reactionary sounds every bit like a judgment to me. You formed an assessment of this person. Now, years ago when Jenny and I used to do beach mission down at Apollo Bar, I'm not sure if I've told you this story before, we're going to tell you again anyway. Um, I was team dad, so it was my job to hover around at the back of the gang and just keep an eye on things. And so we had this big program with kids and everybody else involved. And these two fellas came up to me and they said, what are you doing? And I said, we're telling the kids about Jesus. And they said, what are you telling them? And so we had this lengthy discussion that went for about an hour and a half. And anyway... They kept prodding me, and I could tell that they were prodding, and I used the word sin. And one of the fellows said, what's that? And so I tried to explain it to him, and he said, we don't believe in sin, we don't believe in right or wrong, we don't believe in good or bad, everything just is, we don't judge. And so we had this long conversation. And, uh, and I tried to work out just how consistent they could be with this attitude that says we don't judge anything. I said, which side of the road do you drive on? They said, that's not fair. I said, yes, it is. <laughs> I said, why have you got your dog on a lead? They said, out of respect to other people. I said, no, it's because your dog's mean. I said, can, they, they didn't even believe in pain. And they were both with bare feet and I had blunts on. I said, can I kick you? And he said, go ahead, I won't feel it. I said, you're bigger than I am and I'm not going to. But we had this discussion. It was it was friendly and amicable. I was, they were down there surfing, and I saw them the next day, and it was all all sweet. So we, it was a nice conversation. But it was just after the terrible events at Port Arthur. You remember the Port Arthur massacre? Uh, we had dear old Keith here with us, who who lived through it, and um, and it was just after that. I said, "What about down at Port Arthur? How do you go with that?" Well, they hadn't actually heard of it because they lived in this hippie commune. So I tried to explain it. And they said, no problem. They said, nobody there needed to die. That's what they said. They said, death's a choice. We could live to be a thousand if we want to. And I said, mate, I said, that's a cruel universe. Uh, anyway, the conversation went on. I'll tell you a bit more about it in a moment. But on the other side, there's a British psychiatrist called Theodore Dalrymple. And he, uh, I really like his writing. I've read quite a few of his little essays. You can find them online. But I've got a few of his books. I don't have this one, but I, I've read bits of it online. And it's called In Praise of Prejudice. And he says, 
It's impossible to live without making judgments. He says you cannot face life where everything has to be decided on first principles. Just to go to a restaurant and be confronted with a menu, you've got to choose, well, I like this one better than that one. Every day we make judgments. We make judgments about who will be our friends and who won't be our friends. Who are the people who are going to do us good? Who are the people who are likely to bring us down? Life is full of judgments. Some of them are more serious than others. But it is impossible to live a life free of judgmentalism in some way. So the question is, what did Jesus mean? Because, you see, the thing is, right in the same passage, he says, don't give holy things to dogs and pigs. And that is a judgment. You've got to work out what he means by a dog and a pig. And then you've got to work out the holy things that you're not going to put in their way because you don't want them treated with disdain and trampled on, as Jesus said. A little later, in chapter 7... Jesus talks about how we need to beware of false prophets. He says you'll recognise them by their fruits. So you'll be able to discriminate and work out who a a false prophet is by the kind of things that they say and the kind of lives that they live. Jesus says there are times when you have to judge. So the challenge for us is to work out if it's right sometimes to form judgments... When is it wrong to? Now, I think what Jesus is talking about here is what we might call the spirit of judgmentalism. And this is something that's really easy for Jesus' followers to fall into. Now, this passage here comes in the context of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus has taken his followers aside and he's giving them his instruction. In the book of Matthew, there's four big blocks of Jesus' teaching. And this is the first of them. And Jesus takes his disciples aside And he says, if you want to follow me, this is how you need to live. This is the sort of shape that your life needs to take. And so at the very end of it, we get to this passage here. Now, Jesus has already taught that if you want to enter God's kingdom, it takes the highest possible standards. And so he says in chapter 5, you'll need righteousness in excess of the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were known for being meticulous in their approach to the law. Jesus says you'll need righteousness that exceeds them. He says you need to be perfect. If that's not hard enough, he says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now we've already read Psalm 15. Who may live with you, God? And there's a whole list of things that if we're honest, we'd have to say, well, I haven't done all those. Jesus says you need to be perfect. He says you need to make sure that seeking the kingdom is your number one priority. Seek first the kingdom of God and put everything else behind it. Seek first the kingdom of God. Now, the problem comes with people who really want to do that. They really want to live a righteous life. They really do want to be perfect. They do make the kingdom their number one desire. And then they look at other believers and say, you're not up to my standard." And that's ever so easy and it's a real live temptation for people who are earnest in following Jesus to look at others and write them off because in your own assessment you think they're not measuring up to my standards. And those sort of attitudes are going to cripple a church if not destroy it. So Jesus is teaching what it required, what's required to be a follower of his which means not just having your quiet time and praying every day but turning up and living life 
in partnership with all of the other people in your area who trust Jesus. And that means you're going to be rubbing shoulders with people who are further on in the race and people who have just begun the race of walking with Jesus. You're going to be walking with people who possibly don't read as well as you do. There's going to be all sorts of varieties of people. Jesus says in the community of the kingdom that he's building, one thing you've got to avoid is that spirit of judgmentalism that says, I'm better than you. And so Jesus presses this home with a command that is judge not, that's the command, lest you be, be judged. And then he issues a warning in verse 2. He says, don't judge like that because the measure you use will be the measure you get. Now, when he uses the word measure, what he means is a measuring instrument that measures out corn or grain, right? And so Jesus is here harking back to things that you'll read in Deuteronomy 19. If a false witness brings an allegation against someone and it's discovered that that allegation is entirely false, then the penalty that that person might have got if they were found guilty then is passed on to the person who brings the lies. That's this idea of being judged by your own standard. So if you are a person... This is, this is really serious. It's, it's, it's absolutely not something to sit there with your arms crossed thinking, I've got this one under control. Because this is one of the simplest sins to fall into. And Jesus says if you do, you'll be liable to judgment. And you'll be judged by the same harsh standard that you've meted out to others. So we've got to be really careful. So Jesus gives us an illustration of when it's safe to judge. And this is in verses 3 to 5. And he talks about two brothers. Notice that he says brothers. What that means is brothers in him. People who've become disciples, not natural born brothers, but people who've become family because they belong to him. Disciples in other words. So the, the story's about two brothers and one of them's troubled by a splinter in his eye and there's one who comes along wanting to help with the splinter but he's got a log in his own. Now the word that Jesus uses could almost be translated house beam. So if you can imagine a great big beam that holds a roof up, it's a really, really large, substantial chunk of wood that's occupying the eye. Now, Jesus does not mean us to take this literally. He's driving home a really important point by telling a ridiculous story. This is what you call hyperbole. He's overcooking it, but he wants to make a point. So someone has a splinter in their eye. Have you ever had something in your eye? Yeah, I used to teach metal work, and I got a metal fragment in my eye once. It was very painful, and I had to do something about it, and rubbing wouldn't help, Right? So if you've ever got something in your eye, it's an irritant, but, uh, because amongst other things, it stops you being able to see. And so you've got to get help for it. But you would not readily accept help from someone who's even worse off than you are, who's troubled their vision's blocked not by a splinter, but by a whole house beam. That's not the person who's in the position to be able to help with splinters. And so Jesus says, he he rams it home, the point's pretty clear. He says, if you come to someone with a splinter and yet you are disadvantaged by a house plank sticking out of your eye, you are a hypocrite. You're a false person. You're all talk, no action. You're not in the position to be able to help. We all know what it's like to be advised on people, advised by people where we think you, you really don't get it. You're not in a position to be able to offer advice. Uh, years ago when I was a school teacher, it was the beginning of my second year of secondary teaching up at Nil High School 
and uh, it was the custom of the staff every year on the first day back when the kids hadn't quite joined us yet we'd go down to the street to the commercial hotel and have a lunch together and I don't know how it happened but I was seated next to the principal and so there she was and uh, anyway I was taught by my mother to finish everything on my plate right and so the meal was served and there was salad and there was whatever else and there was a slice of white buttered bread now being well taught by my mother and not wanting to bring discredit on the family name I ate the piece of white white buttered bread so the principal leant across to me and said you know that stuff gives you cholesterol well that was probably sound health advice except that this is back in 1982 she'd accompanied the eating of her meal with two cigarettes (laughs) so who's she to offer health advice and I'd copped a fair bit of the smoke too right She's not in a position to be dispensing dietary advice when she's rotting her lungs out. That was a massive log in her eye. I was respectful, of course, because I wanted to keep my job. But uh, the person with the plank in the eye is someone who's not equipped to help with splinters. Jesus said, or Paul says in Romans 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? Because that's what it means to pass judgment. It means you really look down on them, you despise them. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. I'm sure that Paul had Jesus' words in mind when he wrote those things. What's being spoken of here is the harsh spirit of judgmentalism because if you have a splinter in your eye, you do need help and... It actually takes judgment on the behalf of the other person to say, yes, I can see it. That's a judgment. If someone notices a splinter in your eye, something that's blocking your vision, something that's impeding your progress in the faith, if someone comes along and says, I'd like to help, it would be churlish of you to refuse that because that's not in the spirit of discipleship either. And so if you are in need of help with, your, with how you see life from the vantage point of the gospel and this person comes to you and you're fairly certain they don't have a log in their eye, then the sensible thing would be to accept that help in the spirit of discipleship. Paul talks about that as well. He says in Galatians 6, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or that you also may be tempted. Paul was talking about the values of the Christian community. Jesus is talking about the same. This is how you'll, these are the attitudes you'll need to adopt if you want to be a disciple, if you want to be the kind of person that builds a community up rather than tears it apart. And so Jesus goes on in verse 6, and I think we can sum up what he's saying there by saying, don't judge, but do be discerning. And so he says, don't give your good things to dogs. And pigs, verse 6, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, I'm a dog lover. Uh, I could show you photos of our dog Lily later if you like, right? Jesus was not talking about cute puppy dogs. He was talking about savage pariah dogs. Dogs were not pets back in the day that Jesus was living in. Um, He's talking about the dogs that roam the streets, that scavenge on the the council tip and are a threat to everybody. And there's still countries in the world where these problems exist today. They're the kinds of dogs that he's got in mind. And he says, don't give your pearls to them. Uh, Don't give what's holy to them. 
when he was talking about pigs, everybody that listening to Jesus that day knew that for a Jew, a pig was an unclean animal. But pigs, I'm no expert on pigs, but I'm pretty sure they eat anything, don't they? I mean, I've been on camps where, you know, the camp cooks will say, if you don't like your food, just toss it into the bin, we'll take it to the pigs, right? So Jesus says, don't give what's holy, don't give what's special, don't give what's specially devoted to God, to dogs who would otherwise just scavenge through the tip. Don't give pearls to pigs because they won't know whether it's a high, beautiful piece of steak or just some leftover from the camp. They don't care. They just eat anything. Now, what Jesus is saying here is that we've got to be discriminating in the way that we speak about the gospel because when he says don't give pearls for pigs, later in Matthew's gospel, he says the gospel is like a pearl. The gospel is like something that is so precious that if you knew where to find it, you give up everything to get a hold of it. So the pearl that Jesus is speaking of here is the offer of the gospel. Now John Stott, in his commentary on these words, the English preacher, he says, persisting in our offer of the gospel to people who are hardened against God invites their contempt and blasphemy. Giving such people up is a serious step to take, so it should be done only rarely. Have you ever had conversations with people trying to tell them about Jesus and they say, I've heard enough, I want to hear no more? Jesus says in that case you just have to accept it. Now Jesus did and Paul did. Paul says three times in the book of Acts, all right Jews, now on I'm going to the Gentiles. Jesus said to the disciples, if you go to a village and they won't listen to you, leave the village and shake the dust off your sandals. There are times when we have to say to persist in talking about Jesus in this context is actually likely to do more harm than good because it will harden that person. That doesn't mean you stop praying. It doesn't mean that you stop being kind to that person with the hope of winning them. But I've had conversations with people, even family members, where they say, I want no more. Stop. In that context, we don't push it on them. You can't arm wrestle anybody into the kingdom. It's a sovereign work of God in which we are partners by presenting the gospel clearly and we hope attractively. So how do we work out the difference between discernment and judgment? Jesus says we need to pray. And so verses 7 to 8, he says, do ask, don't don't force things on people, don't waste the gospel, but do ask for life's necessities. He says, ask and it will be given, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. So three images of prayer and three assurances that prayers will be answered. All of those are in the present tense, which means you keep on asking, you keep on seeking, and you keep on knocking. Now, God already knows what we need, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't pray, because prayer is the most practical expression of our dependence on God. Do you depend on God? Do you? The most practical expression you can give to that is your reliance on him in prayer. Now, prayer is one of the hardest things about the Christian life, and it's one of those conversations when I have with people, they say, yes, I know I should pray more. Well, there's there's only 24 hours in a day, and you've got to sleep some of them, and you've got to work some of them, and you've got other duties as well. So you can't be on your knees for 24 hours a day. But we do need to carve out some time in our day when we are alone with God, and we're pouring out the needs of our hearts to him. And it expresses the heart of our discipleship we do want to follow jesus we do want to be changed we want to use our words wisely 
We want to know when and when not to, to share God's word. We, we're dependent on God and expressing that in him, to him in prayer is, uh, is how we should go about it. Paul says pray without ceasing, which means that wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you need to be tuned into God's wavelength so you can be talking to him. Even when you're talking to someone else. So that, that conversation I had on the foreshore at Apollo Bay, I was sort of talking and praying at the same time because I needed wisdom because these blokes were smart and they were pretty sharp. And, and so you can talk and pray. So pray without ceasing, but spend time alone with God too. Now, Jesus gives us an illustration of God's dependability in prayer. He says, you will receive, you will find, you will have the door opened. But he gives this illustration of a son talking to his father. And the son asks for bread, and dad says, what about a rock? And then the son asks for fish, and dad says, how about a snake? And Jesus says, if sinners know how to give the things that their kids need, how much more can you depend on God to give you the things that you need? Right, this is an if-then illustration. He says, it's not actually a pretty picture of the human heart either. Because he says, if you who are sinners, and that means everybody... But he says even sinners get this much right. They know how to provide properly for their children. Well, he says, God who is perfect knows exactly what we need and he knows how to give it to us. So what should we pray for? Jesus doesn't tell us here, but I think it's safe to conclude. Um, Jesus talks about the good things that God gives and the the good things that parents give. Now, bread and fish are staples, aren't they? They're just the things that people eat. So I think we can say that the good things that are talked about here are life's necessities. What do we really, really need? I used to pray for an electric guitar. I didn't ever get it. Uh, What do we need? Well, in the context of this passage here, we need wisdom. Wisdom to know when to judge and when not to. When to speak and when to remain silent. Jesus says... um, You need to ask and keep asking. You need to seek and keep seeking. You need to knock and keep knocking. Now, that's the kind of language that the wisdom books use, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, for gaining wisdom. You need to ask for it. You need to seek it. You need to knock for it. Um, Wisdom, we're told in James 1, is something that everybody needs and God will provide it, but we need to ask for it. So Jesus, when he uses the ask, seek, knock illustration in Luke, Luke chapter 11... The gift that's given there is specified as being the gift of the Spirit. Now, the Spirit is the one who brings wisdom to us. And so what's being... I think the connection between asking and seeking and knocking and don't judge and not casting your pearls before pigs, I think the connection is Jesus is saying to get this right, you'll need the Spirit, you'll need to become wise, so pray for it. Does that make sense? That's the sort of thing you need to pray for. When you wake up in the morning, you need to be depending on God for the wisdom that will enable you to be a good disciple for the rest of that day. So pray for the wisdom that you need to to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. Well, then we get to verse 12, which is often called the golden rule. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. In everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this, says Jesus, sums up the law and the prophets. In other words, the whole of the Old Testament teaching on how to live right is summed up in this passage right here. In everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. Now, do you know a good deal when you see it? Do you know when you've been mistreated? I used to be a school teacher, and I can tell you what, I'm I'm sure it's universal. 
Every kid I ever taught knew when they thought they were getting the rough end of the stick and they told me, right? We all know what we don't want done to us. So what we need to do is to flip that and say, well, if I know what I don't want done to me, I'm going to start to treat other people that way too. If I know the good things that I'd like to have done for me, I'm going to live a life that does that for others. Now, this golden rule, you'll hear it said quite often that the golden rule exists in just about every religion in the world. Now, what I've read, I'm no expert on world religion, but what I've read is that the only time that the golden rule is expressed positively is Jesus. Usually it comes out, do not do to others what you wouldn't want done to you. But Jesus puts it in the positive. Because, you see, the thing is, in the negative, do not do to others what you wouldn't like them to do to you, you can obey that without doing anything. But Jesus says, do to others what you would have them do to you. In other words, think about what you'd want and do that for someone else. And that's active. And it means you need to think about it. And it means you need to step out and do something about it. So when it, we, have a look at your Bible and make sure the little word so is in there, right? In verse 12, so in everything. If you're reading a translation that has, for the sake of smoothness, eliminated that, you need to write it in the margin because it's there. So, so in everything, do to others what you would have. This is the verse that sums up the whole teaching of chapter 7 so far. It goes all the way back to judge not. So judge not that you be not judged. What that is is a way of reminding us that if we wouldn't welcome being judged by others, we should be very wary of being judgmental ourselves to them. This is particularly the case in the church. And remember that Jesus says the measure you give must be the measure you'd like. So don't judge, but don't lack discernment. Don't waste your pearls. Keep praying and keep looking for opportunity to do good that's kind of good that you would like done for you. Since we all have a pretty clear idea of what is good for us, we should be looking for opportunities to do that for others. Now, is that easy? Of course it's not. Think about Psalm 15. Right. Now, those young men that I was talking to down there, they said we don't judge anything, so the conversation went on, and we had a bookstall at the Beach Mission, and, and the conversation was really quite fruitful. We covered a lot of territory, and I said, have you ever read the Bible? And one said, yeah, I did once, and I didn't like it. And I said, isn't that a judgment? He goes, yeah, you got me, man. <laughs> so the other one said he would take a Bible. I said, it, would, will you read it? He said, yes, I will, right? But no one lives by their own standards. Even those non-judgmental hippies, they don't even live by their own standards, but nor do I and nor do you. No one lives consistently. We all fall foul of the standard of Psalm 15. There's only one, and that's Jesus. Now, Jesus died for every splinter and for every log. A splinter gets in your eye and it stops you seeing clearly. It's a little symbol of small sin that needs to be plucked out. If you've got some splinter-like sin in your eye that a, a, non, a, a, a non-log-equipped brother or sister sees and wants to help you with, don't knock them back because that's a, a wrong form of judgmentalism. But if you know that you're not in a position to help, then, then don't presume. 
But Jesus died for every log and every splinter. And what did he do? He submitted himself voluntarily for two logs and he had aching splinters all through his back. Every log and every splinter Jesus paid for on the cross. And so Jesus calls us now to follow him and to leave the judgment to him. We offer freely the good news of Jesus and we seek to put into practice what we say we believe by looking for opportunities to help, not to judge. But that doesn't mean we live life free of opinions or without discrimination. But when we realise that we are not quite sure what the balance is, then we obviously need to seek God's wisdom in prayer. So none of us even lives up to our own standards. Jesus did. He offers free forgiveness for all who come to him by faith. But he calls us then to put aside our personal preferences and to live in a way which is good for others and builds up the community of his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to be a community of people who are committed to doing good for others. Please help us to not be so sensitive that we reject the help that others want to give, but help us not to be judgmental either where we think that we're further along or higher up the ranks than someone else. Help us to remember that we're all sinners in need of your forgiveness. But help us to rejoice each day in the fact that you are a good God, a God who faithfully gives good gifts to those who ask. And we thank you most of all that you gave us the greatest gift of all when you sent your son to die for our sins, for every splinter and for every log that gets in the way of our seeing clearly. So please make us wise, we ask. We ask that you would fill us with your spirit so that we know how to live well in the world and how to live well in the church. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.